0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in. If you're about to go for a run, start. If you're about to do some ironing, eat some crisps, do some great picking in Italy, all the kinds of things that you tell me you do whilst listening to this podcast, get going, because we've got a lot to get through in this particular session. I know it's a cliche to say, and I bet you've all said it and we've all been saying it, that we're living through history. Well, what a week, what a few days coming up. Talk about history. Historians in 200, 300 years' time will be reflecting on the events of the recent past and the coming days. The presidential election, another national lockdown, and on and on this drama goes. So if it's okay with all of you, I'll reflect a bit on a couple of the themes. We could pluck so many. In fact, somebody emailed me and said, you know, we're all going to have to run a marathon for this podcast because there is so much to get through. But I'm going to choose two themes and then your questions are so brilliant we're going to go through some of those and if we don't get to all of them there will be another time very soon. The two themes I'm going to choose by the way one of them is not going to be the presidential election. A lot of you will listen to this before we know who's won. Some of you will listen to it after assuming anything decisive happens over the next few days remember some you know there could be all kinds of contentious legal matters and god knows what else so more reflections on the u.s election next week it might come up in the questions actually but i'm going to first of all reflect on boris johnson's decision to announce a lockdown And refer back, actually, I don't know if any of you tuned in for the uh, live stream via King's Place, sort of live rock and roll politics, a couple of uh, weeks ago. But one of my themes then was how prime ministers, when overwhelmed and out of their depth, almost knowingly repeat the same mistakes again, as if characters in a film noir drawn to their doom and I think we've all reflected that we see a pattern recurring this autumn from what happened in the early spring. In the early spring Johnson was famously late to recognise the nightmarish impact of this virus on the UK and was late to lockdown and what's happened this time exactly the same again in September he was told to do a quick short euphemistically known as circuit lockdown I always think that sounds like a workout like the runs you're all on at the moment this circuit lockdown it was a lockdown and he chose not to do it and what's interesting looking back at that key period in September was Johnson had clearly been swayed by the scientists on the Friday of that key September sequence then Sunak got hold of him over the weekend and persuaded him to do very little for the sake of the economy one of Johnson's characteristics is to be influenced by the last person he spoke to and so by the Monday do you remember of that September period We had the absurd situation of Whitty and Valance going ahead with the press conference, which was planned on the assumption Johnson was going to announce quite big constraints for England. They went ahead, but they weren't allowed to answer any questions because Johnson had changed his mind. So they both delivered those ominous figures which are now much worse than they prophesied and the duo got mocked by the libertarians for daring to prophesy it would get bad by now it's much much worse in reality even though the libertarians continue to moan as if they've been proven right it's just like brexit they become more self-confident and assertive the more wrong they're proven to be so the, the poor scientists, the duo Witty and Valance looking ill, ominously, told us that uh, it was all going to be terrible. Then Johnson popped up a few hours later and announced that pubs would close at 10 o'clock. And that was more or less it. He had changed his mind, which is incidentally, I mean, who knows how their plans for a lockdown this time were leaked, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if somebody who knew about the plan leaked it because they were worried Johnson would change his mind this time too. So anyway, there he was in September, falling into the same traps he fell into late February and early March. And as he did so, so many people I bumped into said they could see the way this was going. It would lead inevitably to a national lockdown and what has happened in between you know that September climb down just don't go to the pub between 10 and 11 after the valance witty double act of doom accurate doom is cinematic all those battles with Andy Burnham Sadiq Khan all the tough talk from Rishi Sunak of you know we've got to end the furlough we've got to do this this and this all of it was unnecessary, all that political energy and capital spent, and now England goes into a national lockdown. It's been extraordinary, but as I kind of discussed at that King's Place live stream, there is a tendency for this to happen. I think I mentioned the 1970s when each Prime Minister, Tory or Labour, went in the end towards a Incomes policy imposed on the unions as their solution to deal with the industrial unrest. Each had concluded in advance that such a move would be a catastrophe. Each implemented the policy and each fell partly as a result of that implementation. Knowingly they moved towards their doom and Johnson in September did what he did in February and March, having concluded in the summer he was wrong privately. No doubt at all he knew he was wrong, but he did it again. And you can see the sort of bewildered chaos that has erupted around him, the bizarre sequence where a press conference was billed to start on Saturday at four o'clock, then five o'clock, then six o'clock, and then it was half past six, and then they were worried it was going to clash with Strictly and all the rest of it. It was a kind of thick of it. Somebody tweeted to me, thick of it without the laughs. Well, to be honest, there was some dark, dark, dark comedy in the chaos. And as a result of an inability for commanding, strong leadership. Johnson appears to be falling between two stalls. Those who I regard as absolutely right, who wanted it in September, are now alarmed that it is happening so late. And the libertarians, the newspapers, some of conservative MPs, are up in arms that it's happening at all. And actually what it needed was an assertion of self confident leadership in September, a commanding address it doesn't have to be one of those silly televised addresses for five minutes where he kind of pumps his fist down stay at home and all the rest of it. It could be a serious I don't know, speech with questions, who knows? But it needed explanation assertiveness and a lockdown in September explanation in capital letters why 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 in fairness to him on Saturday he half did it but then when it came to the questions he was hesitant and insecure in a rather transparent way he is an odd mix of being an actor and incapable of acting at all and being very transparent in his wholly overwhelming sense of unease which is a bit alarming. Johnson curiously for a journalist a columnist it's not surprising that such a character is not necessarily good at governing but you would have thought he had language but he doesn't. There is no clear coherent sentences framing an argument about why they are doing what they are doing and the other thing is this that In the summer, when there was this lull, why didn't they ramp up the test and trace system with, as many have argued, and it's been much talked about in this podcast, one figure, a big figure, accountable, with the authority to pull all levers available to him or her, giving virtually daily updates as to how the test and trace is going – and with the ambition for a kind of South Korean type system, where they have learned through test and trace to just about cope with the virus. Hopefully this time, there's no point in getting this thing down below one, the R rate below one, as they call it, if it's not accompanied by a massive ramping up of the test and trace in this period. For Keir Starmer, And politics matter in an emergency. Even in wartime, political calculations are made. But whether they were political or sincere, I suspect a combination of the two, Starmer made the right call when he urged the national lockdown much earlier, having read the SAGE advice from September. And he will rightly back these measures. But in doing so, he has a protective shield of being right. And Johnson has real problems with this because there is quote after quote after quote from him mocking Starmer for proposing a national lockdown and dismissing it, as he did so a few days ago. And so he's now in this complex position, complex, it's a kind of underestimation of the century, where... He has Tory MPs up in arms about the nature of the announcement, the way it was leaked, their feeling of being peripheral to the whole decision-making process, the opposition from some to the substance of the announcement. You've then got Labour saying they should have done it ages ago, as we suggested, along with the scientists. And he has to navigate his way through this without the capacity for language and without, frankly, great self confidence. He might have the self-confidence of a campaigner and an entertainer and a performer but this is in a different league. While Starmer has done politically extremely well over COVID and it's been very difficult uh, navigating this balancing act of being supportive when it was possible to be and forensically critical when it was necessary to be, he has not only done that, I was thinking today, actually, the other thing he, was, he has done, often in a national emergency, a leader of the opposition becomes almost wholly irrelevant and marginal. In the early build-up to the whole post-September the 11th drama and on to the war in Afghanistan and all the rest of it, Tony Blair, although he too was marching towards darkness with Iraq was so dominant that the then newly elected leader of the opposition, Ian Duncan Smith, never got a look in. Even his election as leader was sort of on page six, because all hell was breaking loose after September the 11th. Um, But Starmer has become a key player by being intelligent, crafty at times, as you have to be as leader of the opposition, but principled too. So having praised him, I'm now going to Criticise him in a way that I suspect, already judging from some emails, that you will disagree with. I think he has made a misstep, and it's one of the few since he's been leader of the opposition, in suspending Jeremy Corbyn. And this is why. Parties are always divided in some form or another. Actually, his Labour Party, on most issues, are broadly united at the moment. Um, He's got a shadow cabinet, which kind of broadly dances. Sorry, I shouldn't stop stop using broadly, but you you have to qualify it a bit. But they dance together on the whole and he's managed to create a new shadow cabinet. Very little echo from Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet. He has remade the Labour Party headquarters with a different set of key figures. Again, without a fuss. People predicted all hell would break loose. That hasn't been the case. And so they are kind of united. And the other twist is that in the response to last week's report on anti-Semitism, there was to unity. Virtually every interviewee said it was a day of shame and every dot and comma of the report should be implemented. And Starmer's original press conference was brutal in its um, implications for Jeremy Corbyn, He did it all. He said, not only am I setting the bar of implementing this report and its recommendations, I'm setting another bar on top of that which is only when those who left feel comfortable about rejoining will I have met the test. And he could have said and added, Jeremy Corbyn can say what he thinks about this, I disagree with him. I'm the future. Jeremy is now a backbench MP. I am going to take this on. And I suspect that would have been enough. Jeremy Corbyn made his statement and, you know, there was... I can't quite understand why there was a hysteria over it. He has made that case before. People can completely disagree with it. I don't think he was saying anti-Semitism as an issue has been exaggerated in its significance in fact, I'm wholly sure he was not saying that that would have been grotesque and outrageous but he was saying incidentally with some justification that the perception I think this is what he was saying the perception given the reporting about it gave the impression that virtually I don't know a third of the Labour Party membership were, anti- were anti-semitic or something that it had been that the scale of numbers where there have been complaints have been exaggerated not the significance of the allegations that have been made and need to be dealt with anyway I don't know anyway I'm not justifying him as leader he clearly failed or else there wouldn't be this going on now the issue I'm just kind of addressing briefly is whether Keir Starmer, via the general secretary or however it happened was wise to suspend Jeremy Corbyn and I argue that it's The wrong move, because what it has done is Jeremy Corbyn was wholly at ease, it seemed to me, just moving back to being a backbench MP representing his constituency in Islington. He had returned to his comfort zone after a period, freakish for any politician, of leadership he hadn't expected to get. And I can't remember the last time people kind of mentioned Jeremy Corbyn to me. Suddenly he is back he has been given a stage, he has been given a cause, people are talking about him. Keir Starmer, even when he was interviewed by Andrew Marr on Sunday in the context of the lockdown to which he can feel wholly vindicated, spent quite a lot of the interview about Jeremy Corbyn. So space that would have been available to him to make other points will be taken up with this internal dispute it's not about a civil war as such because he marshals the vast majority at the moment within labor he was only recently elected that gives him a certain authority and Jeremy Corbyn is relatively though not wholly out of the picture as a defeated leader at the December election but when leaders are hailed for being strong my antenna girl god here comes trouble whenever Neil Kinnock took his own party on he and by the way Neil Kinnock often had no choice but to do so but he was hailed papers like the times at last we've seen strong courageous leadership then within a year or so when all the consequences of the strength have manifested itself in disputes within the Labour Party the times would then say Neil Kinnock is not prime ministerial because he spent so much time on kind of trying to manage the Labour Party and has been at war with his party and so on and therefore vote conservative now the current times would say that probably anyway but you know what i mean the the decision to suspend i think was unnecessary because Stamm has taken such a clear stand on anti-Semitism. And it is so different tonally and in practice from Jeremy Corbyn that this reaction to Jeremy Corbyn's statement, a view he I think sincerely holds, hes and has expressed many times before, was disproportionate and counterproductive. But I know many of you will disagree. Now as I say I'm not going to do the American presidential election because some of you will be jogging along or ironing or cooking knowing the results so there's no point me saying i predict this or that if that is the case but obviously we can discuss that next week please ask questions or raise points when we know who has one for next week's podcast but i'm going to turn to some questions now because they're fantastic questions thomas bucknell tom actually bucknell Who's Prime Minister, Boris Johnson or Steve Baker? Steve Baker took a team into number 10 to scrutinise the lockdown evidence, and he came out saying the evidence was such that he was going to support the lockdown. Well, you know, Johnson makes the calls, but the point is well made. There's an extraordinary thing about people like Steve Baker, they always occur in parliamentary parties where somehow they terrify prime ministers. And you can see why Baker does when he was running the ERG. He made Theresa May's life a form of hell over Brexit. And he threatens to do the same, obviously for Boris Johnson, which is why he was invited in. He wields power through a reputation for troublemaking and it is a form of power when all hell is breaking loose with a number 10 that is that curious mixture of swagger and panic okay there's a really interesting question from sarah murphy and sarah says uh oh first let me say how much i enjoy your podcast thank you sarah and oh sarah's one of the 5k runners she says she likes it when i run over because then i can kid myself that i'm still keeping time i like those podcasts where you're running you think oh i'm going really well i'm sort of and then suddenly you find that the podcast that you're listening to is much longer than usual. Anyway, uh, Sarah raises the point about flawed, distorted, misinformed news, fake news, etc. And she points out the Department of International Trade Twitter account starts tweeting nonsense about tariffs on soy sauce. That's um, that uh, deal they've got with Japan, and they chose it was beyond parody to hail that uh, soy sauce was going to be cheaper uh, deeply uh, flawed on about 25 levels and johnson getting away with his australia deal and that we will prosper mightily rubbish outside any deal at all with a no deal and sarah says she ends up shouting at twitter the radio television and newspapers i know even this this period is not good for our blood pressure Uh, although running helps why aren't they made to tell the truth and what so many of us fear is that in 2021 there will be concerted effort to ramp up the blame for everything on covid and the EU I even had a letter back from the DIT claiming that more trade is essential if we're over to come the unprecedented economic challenge posed by COVID nineteen and succeed in the long term. There was no mention of Brexit and how that effectively trashes the trading networks. I know it's a kind of topsy turvy world we're in at the moment. How can we stop this pernicious framing of the debate? How do we get honesty back into politics and can it be done without massive reform of the press and the electoral system? Well you highlight Uh, the weird world that we're in at the moment where we're leaving the biggest trading area the single market customs union and hail soy sauce and so on uh, with japan the pernicious framing i mean it's up to the government if they want to frame in this way they can then we are as an electorate dependent on the mediating agencies and this one has got a lot of Cheerleaders. It's got a lot of critics as well, but there are cheerleaders. I often thought if Gordon Brown was Prime Minister at the moment, he would be being slaughtered. How do we get honesty back into our politics? Now, that is a question which raises thousands of questions because honesty takes many different forms. Politics is partly about putting a case, and the Department of International Trade have decided to put a case by highlighting a deal with... Japan about soy sauce and that can be torn apart but it's about putting a case. Uh, There is dishonesty around at the moment more than usual but let's see what happens to Trump and whether the fashion for dishonesty is quite as profound afterwards if he loses. Can it be done without massive reform of the press and the electoral system? I think that we are stuck with the media we've got and it is, I always think Whenever the history of British politics is written up, the media must play a big part because even now the media is so fractured. We don't, even us lot, you know, us political addicts, we don't follow it all in the raw. We're dependent on mediators and that brings a huge responsibility which is rarely met. I've got a feeling the electoral system, though I know a lot of you will disagree with this, is a red herring. That's not the reason why we are in this position for lots of kind of reasons but that's a whole podcast like so many of your interesting questions thank you sarah i I think that answer and your question you should have finished the 5k i almost got an essay from jeff jeff strange who's uh, near me in uh, crouch end who um oh he tells me by the way that um oh yeah, I'm listening whilst in my underpants, vacuum cleaner strapped to my back, crisps in hand, and all the while I'm running the weekly 10K and I chop the broccoli already. We're dealing with genius here. And actually the email is genius and it's quite a long one. I'm not going to read it all, but Jeff talks about the atomization of politics with the parties uh, splintering. And in America too, and leadership, such a fickle thing to define. Surely leadership relies upon middleweights in cabinet to up to being led and relish the challenge. I don't see anybody in this cabal of cronies. And he says, having written a long and a very like a political column, and he's still back to hoovering, uh, mostly confined to stray crisps well eat those off the floor it's fine uh, no no don't with the virus around I mean otherwise it's absolutely fine yeah no uh, this is a, quite a big theme Jeff this um the weakness of the cabinet and it is a real issue Uh, On many different levels. So, for example, one of the reasons why this number 10 makes so many mistakes is it feels it can act without constraint. Famously, Cummings views the parliamentary party with disdain and much of the cabinet with disdain. And I think they got into a mindset with, with the big majority, which they think they got themselves you know, Cummings and Johnson, that they could do what they want. And that mindset is still there in spite of all the mistakes they make. And as I kind of mentioned earlier, there's this curious thing. The more mistakes a number 10 makes, and certainly this one, in some ways, the more kind of arrogant and assertive they become. And there aren't big figures in this cabinet to challenge there has been a bit and it's interesting when challenged johnson can start to waver as he did when sunak challenged him over the lockdown in september and he wavered the wrong way and sunak needs further scrutiny having made a series of bad calls including that one about not having the lockdown in september and his indeed his eat out to help out campaign which seems to have had an input in the revival of the virus, which is not exactly a desirable end to eat out and help out. Andrew Malholland, Yeah, Or oh, Andrew asked one of my favourite themes about political space and it's in relation to Corbyn and Starmer. When anyone makes a move, they have to judge how much space is available to them when they make it. And if they get that wrong, they are in big trouble. Now, Andrew argues Starmer does have the space. I think that's what you're arguing. But Corbyn doesn't because he is pretty powerless now. Oh, and by the way, Andrew's the one picking olives in Italy with no crisps involved. Well, that is, I hope you're able to do this, Andrew, socially distance for some time to come. I look forward to eating the olives, actually, but perhaps with some crisps. I wonder, though, whether you're right about Keir Starmer having the space i think the last thing he needs when he's making such headway actually as a kind of prime ministerial figure on covid and so in command of his shadow cabinet and a new party headquarters ahead in the polls in terms of personal ratings whether he has the space or wants to use up available political space in a very vivid battle with a former leader. It's not like Neil Kinnock versus Militant in many respects, it's certainly not. Tony Blair on Clause 4. Tony Blair and Clause 4, Labour were miles ahead by the time he did Clause 4. Everybody saw him then as the next Prime Minister. And Clause 4 had actually been disowned by lots of his predecessors. Harold Wilson used to joke about Clause 4. So this is different. Suspending the former leader who you served in the Shadow Cabinet a few months ago or a year ago is just quite a contortion, I think. But I, I, I know many of you will disagree. And lots of people have tweeted telling me they disagree as well. And I think um, Nathan Baroda uh, writes to say, I wanted to challenge the premise of uh, my view about Starmer and Corbyn and divided parties because I disagree with its premise. And Nathan gives the example that last year Boris Johnson exiled 21 of his MPs and then won a stonking majority a few weeks later. Uh, That example is a good one. The only thing I would say, Nathan, is that Brexit was unique as a political issue. And Johnson had the Brexit party breathing down his neck. So the alliance he wanted to form in terms of voters was with the Brexit voters and destroying Farage and the Brexit party. And therefore, it was quite clear to him and Cummings, although I think it will give the Tory party an existential crisis in the years to come, that to kick out the non-Brexiteers or the non-hardline Brexiteers was the only way they were going to be able to do it. So there was a kind of clear electoral strategy, which was to kill the Brexit party. As I say, I just think this seems unnecessary to me. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn was getting on leading his quiet life. Starmer was clearly, has absolutely put anti-Semitism centre stage. And will be judged by it, irrespective of what happens to Jeremy Corbyn. But um, and I do think voters don't follow all the twists and turns at all. I'm afraid. I mean, for us lot today, focusing on this podcast in whatever form, we are not typical. But I do think they notice those kind of just a noisy row, which is quite often the uh, motif of the Labour. Party. Uh, Yeah, this is interesting from Simon Lockyer. He challenges something I was saying about Bernard Jenkin because last week I quoted Bernard Jenkin, the Tory MP, at length about his criticism of the test and trace system. And Jenkins' basic criticism was it was far too fractured and all over the place. Simon makes the point that he backed all the reforms that led to a kind of fracturing of the NHS and Uh, the kind of wider theme of this podcast quite often which is uh, you know the fracturing of public services and no one's responsible or accountable for anything. There are some other points uh, Simon makes. Uh, Final thought, how can the Conservatives claim as they used to that they are the party who can manage the economy and control spending without increasing taxes with the debt the size that it is, how can they manage this balancing act? Well, that question is going to get deeper now because the furlough is going to apply throughout November or the rest of this month as well. So it's, I mean, how, if they get through this, well, they will in some form. They're not going to give up that majority of 80-plus and hold an election. So they will get through this, and then they're going to face another nightmare which is how they manage the economy my view is this current number 10 will want to borrow and let borrowing take much of the pain for now and sunak and the treasury will want to start to try and balance the books good luck with that question from paul cooper Do you think the core Conservative voters will drift towards the political centre ground if they become as disenfranchised as those who Johnson sought to expel from the 2019 party? Well, it's a good question, but it depends really what you mean by disenfranchised. The Tory coalition in December 2019 was around Brexit, as I said earlier, which is why they kicked out you know, those terrible revolutionary figures like Philip Hammond. And that will fracture, partly, I think, because the reality of Brexit will be far removed from their fantasies, but because by 2024, 2025, there will be other issues now which way voters who turn to the Tories will go then will depend on many other factors whether the Tories can reinvent themselves whether Keir Starmer comes up with a clear coherent alternative but at the very least I think we can say a year in that the Tory relationship with those who switch the so-called red wall seats is very fragile and don't those MPs who were elected know it Okay, I think what is the title? Blimey, those of you doing the 5K will be finished. Cameron, uh, I'm interested to know your thoughts on the achievements of new Labour. With 418 seats in 1997 and impressive majorities at subsequent elections, did they go far enough as a governing party? The Brexit vote and its constitutional consequences have illuminated some of the key structural tensions in the UK with roots arguably in the new Labour years. For example, devolution furthered the demand for independence in Scotland and, after moving away from conversations on electoral reform, first-past-the-post voting fist system now feels 20 years out of date. Could New Labour have been bolder and smarter in its vision for the future of the UK? Well, blimey, uh, Karen, thank you. That, will take, that could take a whole podcast series. But you are right to suggest one thing. And it's a very interesting point that New Labour had, in 1997, bigger majorities than the Thatcher landslides and the Boris Johnson landslide in December And, of course, way more than Cameron had because he didn't have a majority at all in 2010. But then compare that Tory trio with New Labour. Now, New Labour achieved a heck of a lot, much more than they're given credit for at the moment. But that will change in time. But they were nowhere near as bold. Let's just take Cameron. There he was in 2010. He didn't win a majority. And look what he did real term spending cuts in the midst of a deep recession. Out Thatchering Thatcher. Thatcher never did real term spending cuts. She didn't increase at the rate required in terms of health spending and so on. Never did real terms cuts. The public service reforms, that um, some of which she didn't dare to do, they did. The fixed term parliament act introduced really in the short term to give stability to the coalition so cameron knew that he'll be prime minister for at least five years and then of course let's not forget it was within that parliament that he proposed the referendum if he won in the 2015 election now we all know about the thatcher era it was a truly radical transformation and johnson brexit his own kind of confused, bewildered, ideological reaction to um, COVID. Determination, we'll see whether they do it to reform the civil service, the BBC. I mean, I doubt whether they have just the ability to do, to do it, but they like the threatening. Now, New Labour did a heck of a lot, but you're right that they, they felt like imposters, disturbing the natural order of things where England at least votes Conservative and that was the the mood all the way through it was very interesting much of the media as ever media orthodoxy was wrong you know the media orthodoxy was about arrogance control freakery spin and all this kind of the basic theme was here was a group of people used to losing elections big time Blair and Brown elected in 1983 suddenly presiding over this huge majority but both of Blair and Brown in different ways, worried about Middle England, the newspapers Middle England read, and so on. And it did lead to a caution. The whole Scottish issue is fascinating, because as you No, they thought the introduction of devolution in a Scottish Parliament would kill off the cause of nationalism rather than propel it to stratospheric new heights. And yeah, I could go on for a long time, but you're right to detect a caution. And the contrast with these Tory prime ministers is really interesting. And I think one of the tests of... The next Labour Prime Minister, whether it's in our lifetimes, I I think it will be. I think Starman's got a good chance. Will be whether they can govern with confidence and be radical and confident in their radicalism, like Thatcher, Cameron and Johnson. I mean, Johnson isn't a confident figure now, but he's already... Taken us out of the European Union. I mean, that is a revolutionary act of destructiveness, but it's a revolutionary act. Look, uh, brilliant, brilliant questions. Uh, Do you mind if we do one more? Just do one more lap because they are they are also good. Some question here from oh, lots of questions from Noah. I'm going to just read one by the time of the next election how will labor be able to frame a message about economic divisions in society it's clear there have always been many regardless of the pandemic and that this won't go away will they be able to effectively frame a message about a solution of keynesian greater public spending not least given how much the tories are spending do you think the future of election campaigns will said always be cultural matters not economic brilliant question I don't think they will be cultural I think it's a bit of a red herring this cultural thing the, the last election was because of Brexit and Brexit became cultural although in reality it's not as we're going to find it's about economics it's about how you manage yourself in relation to other countries trade And the rules that govern trade and the rules that govern trade don't just apply to Europe. It will apply to a tiddly little trade act with Japan where we're getting the soy sauce in for uh, apparently brilliant value. That's, you know, forget about Brexit. Cheaper soy sauce is on its way. Although I gather that that was also going to be available to the EU with their trade deal that's been negotiated with Japan. But there we go. So I think it will be about economics. But your broader point is a really interesting one. Again, it's going to take a whole half-marathon podcast because um, it is the case that the Tories are spending a lot. And Rishi Sunak, although I'm told he isn't a Keynesian at all, he's a sort of George Osborne economic liberal, did put a Keynesian argument in his budget last March where he said, we are borrowing and spending because they generate growth and in making that case he was making a Keynesian case. Now he was actually spending about 25p compared with what he then had to spend when they recognised Covid was going to wreak havoc and as we've already discussed they're going to spend more in November. So whether Labour can go into an election saying we're going to spend even more depends on a context we just don't know about at the moment. We don't know frankly where we're going to be next week or next month so the the framing of an economic argument so fundamental still in my view to winning or losing elections especially for Labour where the bar is set so much higher than with the Conservatives because of the media framing will be fundamental but it's too early yet to say what it is going to be but what I do think is interesting is both Theresa May and Boris Johnson, in their different ways, have moved the Conservative Party on from Thatcherism, finally. Cameron pretended to be this great modernising figure, but actually he was, in the key areas, utterly committed to Thatcherism. And indeed, Oliver Letwin once told me the whole project was about reheating Thatcherism. But Theresa May, in her declaration in the 2017 election and elsewhere that it's time to focus on the good that the state can do and Johnson although it is yet to be fleshed out but the language of levelling up is different from previous leaders so they are moving on to terrain which is to the left economically than any of the leaders from Thatcher onwards and that is interesting Usually it's an advantage to the other party when ideas are moving in their direction. But that too is a whole new podcast. I I could go on for hours. and I say, we haven't mentioned the US presidential election. Do keep your questions coming. I know I've missed out a load. I promise I will get through them one way or another next week or the week after. I think next week's going to be quite busy. But do email with your points about the election, the lockdown, there are going to be many many dramas in the coming days but thank you so much for listening this time much appreciated let's keep in touch on all fronts and get together again safely it will be the lockdown by then for the next podcast see you then thank you